Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Leander Sharlockens, who recently released the Soccer Stories newsletter. We've had some great guests lately, including Chris Russell, Celine Gounder and Robbie Sicca, and Luis Garcia. So check those out. Now, here's my interview with Leander Sharlockens. Our guest now is a longtime friend of mine. Leander Sharlockens recently started the site Soccer Stories on Substack. It's a newsletter that's exactly what it says it is, stories about soccer. Leander has written over the years for ESPN, Fox Sports, and Yahoo Sports, as well as the New York Times. You can find his site at soccerstories.substack.com. And you can find Leander on Twitter at Leander Alphabet. He is also a lecturer at Marist College. Leander, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. It's good to see you. Uh, I'm really glad to be on. It's been a while, my friend, and and, and I'm really excited about this. Um, lots of questions from my end here, but it's funny. I was thinking about how long I have known you, and I think the first time we ever met in person was in Washington, D.C. at a coffee shop, and I'm wondering, is that accurate? Help me out here. I think that's right. It would have been politics and prose. And uh, that would have been when I was living in D.C. And you lived in Baltimore, I want to say? Yes. So probably that must have been them sometime between 2007 and 2012. Um, yeah, I think that was before the World Cup, which is when I joined ESPN. Yeah. Cool. I, and I remember meeting you. And here was this guy who was Dutch, who'd grown up in Belgium, who you had a real interest and fascination with great sports writing and and you knew a lot about the history of sports illustrated as i recall <laughs> and i'm wondering how did that happen to a dutch kid so the there there's a long story here and a very long story and i'll try to tell just the the, the short long story and that's that my family going back several generations played baseball and that's because my grandfather uh, in sort of the, the last gasp of, of World War II, he was 16 years old. Uh, he'd been part of the resistance in the Netherlands, running guns. His own father was sort of a higher up in the resistance, and he didn't even know about it. That's sort of how things worked. And um, as the south of the Netherlands, where we're from, Breda, uh, Ernie Stewart's old stomping grounds, um, was liberated, um, the Allied army would sort of try as much as possible to rebuild armies in the countries that, that had been liberated. And so my grandfather lied about his age and signed up for the Dutch Marine Corps. They got their basic training in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and uh, the war was over before they had a chance to be deployed into the Pacific Theater, which had been the plan. But so anyway, he fought for two years in Indonesia, which was a Dutch war, which is a very ugly affair. Um, but then he came back to the Netherlands and he decided with a friend to start a baseball team because they had seen baseball when they were in the United States. And so he played baseball uh, much of his life. Then he managed a baseball team of Antillian players that did very well. So there's, there's lots of great stories there. And uh, then my mom played softball and then she sort of passed it on to me. So I was kind of obsessed with American sports growing up in Brussels where we had moved because my mom would eventually rise to be the uh, European Union's negotiator with the World Trade Organization. Um, and so there was one English bookstore in Brussels. It was a Waterstones, I think. Um, and there was one American sports magazine that they carried and it was Sports Illustrated. And it was ludicrously expensive because this is before sort of global markets had kind of 
uh, made these things more affordable. And so it would have been the equivalent today of like $15 or something like that. <laughs> it was really, really expensive. Uh, but so I went every week and uh, they didn't have it every week. And uh, they would usually only get, as if memory serves, they would get one copy um, that they would sort of keep in stock. And, and so I had to get there first. I never saw more than one copy there. So I had to sort of make sure I got there whenever it uh, came in. And, um, and so I, I read them religiously. And, and so, yeah, probably by the time I met a Sports Illustrated writer, I, I would have known quite a bit about the magazine. That's fascinating. And it's funny because you actually got to see the weekly magazine, Sports Illustrated, the print version, whereas... With most Europeans I came into contact with over the years when I was at Sports Illustrated, they didn't necessarily see the weekly edition, and they mostly wanted to talk about the swimsuit issue, which was apparently the only issue that kind of had some greater market penetration in Europe. They they Uh, may have had more than one issue of that, yeah. (laughs) So... As I recall, like you knew, like kind of like I did growing up reading Sports Illustrated, like you knew a lot about the writers and their work based on how much you had read it. And did that have an influence then on what you wanted to do with your work life in terms of wanting to to write about sports? It it really did. Yeah. I mean, by the time I would have met you... Um, it was probably 2009 or so. So I would have been reading Sports Illustrated at that point for probably close to 15 years. Um, and, you know, the, as, as you probably know, there, there isn't really that long form, um, deep dive narrative journalism, new journalism tradition in European sports writing. I mean, it's, it's certainly come along in recent years, but it's, it's not as entrenched in kind of the, the fabric of, of European sports writing. And so I always loved that, that way of storytelling and I always gravitated towards that. Um, so that was always the hope to find some way of, of just telling great stories that happen to be about sports, which has kind of, I think, been the, uh, the, the thread through my, my writing career. Um, and, and that's, that's still what I try to do now with my newsletter. And, it's also one of the reasons I think that I gravitated towards soccer, aside from just kind of being my native sport, as it were, uh, my, my mother tongue sport, um, is that it has so much potential for those stories that are that are more complex and more complicated and, and that go deeper than just, hey, here's a thousand words on this player who's just uh, who's just broken through from the academy. We are going to get into lots of details about your new newsletter um, before that, though, I just wanted to ask, how did you end up in the United States? My wife is American. Um, we met in London, per chance. She was wearing a Columbia University t-shirt. I wanted to go to grad school there. They, they wound up waitlisting me, but we won't get into that. Um, and so we just kind of ch- got chatting and, and things sort of um, ad- advanced from there, as they say. And uh, so she's from the Hudson Valley here in in New York, which is where we live now. And uh, just in, entirely coincidental in that sense, just there there weren't too many people wearing uh, Columbia University T-shirts around London at the time. I don't know about now, but uh, <laughs> so that was it was a conversation starter. It was it was a happy excuse too. I'll uh, I'll admit. Hey, were there any other influences for you that made you want to tell great sports stories? Um. You know, Simon Cooper was was sort of an an early hero of mine in in sports writing, aside from sort of the the Sports Illustrated stable, because he kind of caught on pretty quickly that the story in soccer 
like the real story, the good story was very seldom what was actually happening on the field. I mean, he, he wrote that book, um, uh, Football Against the Enemy. Mm -hmm. I think that came out in like 1994 or something like that. That had a really big influence on me because that sort of reaffirmed this idea that, yeah, you actually can write about soccer in sort of a a deeper way. Um, I know it would have been, you know, a teenager when I read that book. Um, so, So that was really impactful to me because... That's to this day, that's that's how I kind of like to write about soccer. I kind of find that the 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 longer that I cover it and the more time that I spend in press boxes, the less that I'm interested in what's actually happening on the field. I mean, that's great. And it's my favorite sport. And, and I, you know, watch during the season, I'll watch 10 games a week, like like most soccer writers I know. But I still find that the least interesting thing about soccer. And that's that's a compliment, I think, because it's it's the geopolitics and it's the dynamics around around it and it's the drama and the tribalism and and while those things have a tendency of turning toxic um i, I it's it's still there there's such rich material there um that it's just kind of a bottomless source of of interest to me one of the reasons i went full-time soccer back in 2009 was because i loved the sport and the stories but i i left basketball and the one of the main reasons i did was because Soccer had more, a greater variety of stories than basketball did. It felt like for years I had sort of written some version of the same story in basketball about the kid in college who was going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft the following season. And he was going to, you know, make a lot of money and be a great player and buy a house for his mom. And that's an amazing story, life story. It's incredible. But the eighth or ninth time you tell that story, it's not as interesting, I think. And, And so I never wanted to get cynical about things. But soccer, because it had so much volume globally, was tied into... There were so many great stories. It was tied into society, politics, um, gender, any possible topic you could think of just because soccer was just ever present around the world. And and I know you've written about other sports as well. Uh, You've written about baseball. You wrote a wonderful sort of investigative piece on Donald Trump's baseball (laughs) career a few months ago. Um, And and yet, have you found that to be similar, that that soccer just has a, a, a wide wider variety of stories. Yeah, definitely. And and don't forget, by the way, in college basketball, the story of the inspirational head coach who who, <laughs> who, who is a paradigm of morality and... Uh, and cheating and, on the side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that um, sort of every major story um, of, of our 21st century society can be told through soccer. Like you could find a soccer story as an entry point to just about any anything that's going on in the world, whether it be war, whether it be conflict, whether it be, uh, you know, climate change. Like if, if you wanted to, you could find some way of telling any of those things through soccer because it so permeates um, our society. It's the only global language. And, and there is... Like you say, sort of any movement, any sort of social cause is in some way reflected in soccer. It's it's like we kind of, as a sport, we have an answer for everything, and and there's um the there's always some interesting story 
somewhere to be scooped up that that hasn't really been told before and that's that's an outlier of every story you have before it's not like in in some other sports and i don't want to denigrate them but where you basically have like four or five or six buckets of stories and everything kind of fits into one of those buckets and is some slight variation of that um and and that's that's why i love it too you make a great point in sort of your intro piece for your Substack newsletter, Soccer Stories, that the farther you went in your writing career, the less you actually did what you enjoyed the most, which is writing good stories about people. What do you think has caused that? Um, I, I think it's a combination of things. I, I think it's the hot takeification of, uh, of sports media where more and more of it is opinion and more and more of it is, is kind of driven by um, you know, taking a side on something and then kind of either having your readers nod along with you or sort of vigorously disagree. There's a lot of that. Um, but also it just seems like the economics of the business um, make it harder and harder to just kind of dig into things. You know, there's let, let's be honest, there's a lot fewer people doing more or less the same amount of work or more work than before. Um, combined, right, as as an industry. Um, there, there seems to be as much content as there ever is, but there's a lot fewer people producing that. So there isn't as much bandwidth as there used to be. And there's, there's certainly um, outlets kind of valiantly trying to fight against that. You know, the, the New York Times, I think, has done a great job of pivoting away from kind of doing daily sports journalism and just telling stories. Um, and, you know, The Athletic has, has tried to scale that um, in interesting ways. Um, I, I think, you know, Sports Illustrated by getting a, uh, a paywall up to, to sort of help pay for, for quality, longer form things. I, I think that's, that's the right idea. And you're seeing lots of places now. I mean, almost all of the quality sports writing now is behind some kind of paywall or, or subscription service. Um, there's very little left that you can get to um, if if you're not willing to pay, that's that's of high quality, which which is a separate conversation about what it's going to do to our society when all the good information uh, costs money and all the bad information is free. Um, but so it's it's sort of a combination of those factors, I think, that have just kind of made it harder for someone who is on contract or on staff somewhere to kind of do ambitious things that are going to take time. I had the same experience uh, my last few years at Sports Illustrated that I got to a point where the stuff that I did best, I think, was the two to 5,000 word magazine story. And it got to the point where I was also good at other sort of what I call hamster wheel type activities. (laughs) (laughs) And my bosses, I don't think, would have even demanded that I ever write one of the longer stories at a certain point, but I didn't enjoy that as much. But like, and so I've tried to force it doing a certain number of the long stories, but that also then became like a seven day a week job to try and get right. the time to, to do those types of things. I just wanted to write stories that people are going to remember and not stuff that was going to be forgotten instantly. And unfortunately, the market now seems to reward more or incentivize the, the quantity. Plus, like you've got the ad market for like if you're a free site and you're going to be based on clicks and ads the ad market has gone into the tank because of google and facebook having so much of the ad market and 
I kind of decided that I needed to be associated as much as possible with subscriptions because that was the only way I could see quality, which is what I want to be associated with being sustainable. Yeah. Subscriptions will set you free. That's, that's, <laughs> I, I think the, the motto now, and, and that's why what all these different places have discovered, I think. And the, the beauty of subscriptions is then you don't have to go chasing clicks anymore. You can go chase quality and it just completely changes the model of, um, of what's incentivized. And, if if you're not chasing after traffic through through search engines and through aggregators and through all the rest, then then you're not constrained to just you know finding things that people will click on. Um, so it it completely changes everything, which is what what very much I was hoping to do with my newsletter. So how would you go about deciding like I'm going to start my own Substack newsletter? Um, it was terrifying because it sort of requires a certain amount of. Okay, so all these people follow me on Twitter, and you know a solid core of people has been reading me for a long time now. But are they willing to pay for it? That's that's an entirely different sort of level of of um, of following a writer. Um, so my my Yahoo run ended after six very happy years, um, and you know I, at that point I'd been I'd spent eleven years. Uh, as you mentioned at the top with ESPN, with Fox Sports, and I'd sort of always had the same kind of job where it's like, there's another game. All right, let's write about that game. And now there's another game. All right, let's write about that game. Um, and I was doing less and less of, of kind of just finding a good story and telling it. And there was less and less bandwidth for that. Um, and so what I wanted first and foremost is finding some mechanism of, of getting back to just the kind of writing that made me happy. Um, and I am fortunate in that I have a day job that, that I, I hope to, to have forever at, at Marist college where I teach sports writing and sports media, sports culture. Um, and so I thought, you know, let's, let's try this, uh, this newsletter model because it, it does have this kind of sustainable or, or at least more, uh, kind of predictable income stream that isn't tied to clicks or anything like that. I had some conversations with a few uh, a few big outlets about potentially doing another one of those jobs, but I kind of decided to take the leap. Um, you know, had had uh, had a guy make a logo that turned out well, I thought, and and just kind of went for it. And I mean, that's that's what the landscape is in 2021 kind of anyone can go out and strike out on their own and then you know whether you, whether you sink or swim is going to depend uh to a large extent on the quality of the idea and the quality of the work and how you kind of put it out there and and i have kind of a, a bit of an entrepreneurial streak and so that part of it appealed to me as well um i was really encouraged by the start i got, I got a lot of nice uh, pick up on on stories and and that that really helped with with getting the thing going and then like like anything else right like like this podcast it's just a matter of showing up and and doing good work and and kind of delivering and being consistent and so it's it's been really fun because it's kind of on me and while that's scary um i i thought it was something that i really wanted to try and it sort of felt like a good moment to do it both personally and kind of where the industry is um, so it's been really rewarding. You have a story that comes out every Tuesday on your site. Uh, and I, I've enjoyed the stories you've done so far. It's a wide variety on, on topics from John O'Brien to Johan Cruyff to Alexi Lawless to companies that make kits. Lots more topics. We talked about the variety that soccer gives you. Do you have a favorite? 
so far in terms of what you've done? Oof. Uh, well, I'm, I'm nine newsletters in, so I'll, I'll try to pick from my nine children. Um, the, there's, yeah, so, so as you say, the, the model is to uh, report something, to write something surprising and unexpected every two, and it drops every Tuesday. You get it in your inbox if you're a paid subscriber, hint, hint. Um, and so, oh, gosh, my favorite. I like the John O'Brien one. The first one, the, 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 the one about the kit industrial complex, I called it, was, was sort of my, my firstborn. So I'll always have a soft spot for that because it got a lot of pickup. And I was really surprised at how much traffic it did, um, given that, uh, you know, it's, it was a brand new website. Um, so, so that was a very happy surprise. Um, one I really liked was about Bill Gerrard, who's kind of this unknown OG pioneer of analytics in soccer who, who I hadn't heard of. Um, and so he was really interesting because he kind of talked about coming up with all these analytics mechanisms in the mid 90s when, you know, soccer had, had barely started kind of uh, divorcing itself from the long ball, right, from kick and rush, especially in, in England where he was working, although he's Scottish. And, and so he was kind of running into all these walls where people just had no idea what he was talking about. Um, I like that one. I did one um, this week on, um, or at least the week that we're recording, on why so many American owners are buying European teams. And, and that's the fun thing about having a newsletter. I was curious. Like, you know, you, you sort of understand why uh, the Glazers bought Manchester United and why Stan Kroenke bought uh, Arsenal and why... Some venture capital firm accidentally wound up owning AC Milan because uh, its its other owners kind of defaulted on a loan or something like that. You, you sort of get that, right? You, you get that being able to buy Newcastle for 300 million pounds compared to a, a major league team in the United States costing at least a billion dollars, how that's a bargain. But what I wasn't understanding is why so many of these tiny clubs also had American owners, why there are now two teams in Belgium that have American owners and, and three teams in France, um, just in the top division, I believe. Um, I, I didn't really get that. So I went and found out and I talked to some of those owners and I talked to some of their consultants and they were like, well, actually, there's huge upside in those small teams because if you make the Champions League once, you're rich. Um, or if you get like one great transfer, you're doing really well. So it's stories like that um, that I really enjoy doing. Like I'll have a question. I have, I think, a pretty curious mind and, and that mind spends far too much time thinking about soccer. So, you know, you kind of combine those things. Now I now have a spreadsheet of ideas for newsletters. And the last time I counted, I had 57 items on them, <laughs> um, which is going to take me a long time to get through those. Uh, but so, you know, the, those types of stories that, that are surprising and that, um, you know, you hadn't expected, like John O'Brien, former national team star, who, who is now a uh, who has a Ph.D. and who is now a psychologist and who's studying dreams. Right. Because he after he retired, suddenly he was having all these dreams about soccer. And then he found out that a bunch of other retired players did, too. And he was like, oh, wait, I'm now in a position to be able to study those. I'm going to study those. Um, I, I love those finding those weird little stories that still have some connection to where you're like, oh, I remember that guy. The summer of soccer continues on Paramount Plus. Stream over 2000 soccer matches a year from around the world. That's all the heart-pounding drama from CBS Sports, including UEFA Champions League, Europa League, Italy's Serie A, Argentina's Primera División, the Brasileirao, the NWSL, 
the Asian Football Confederation, and the CONCACAF qualifiers, featuring the stars from the U.S. and Mexican men's national teams. Plus, much more. It's the best of the beautiful game, with all the beautiful names, like Messi, Mbappe, Ronaldo, Rapino, and Pulisic. Be part of the excitement as champions are crowned and history is made. The world's game lives here on Paramount+. Plus. Visit ParamountPlus.com to start your free trial and stream every match live. It's funny because I, I tweeted this out a month or two ago, but it's also true is like I get so many of my story ideas while I'm shaving and <laughs> and it made me wonder if I should shave like eight times a day and maybe I would come up with more good ideas for stories. Like, I know there's different ways of coming about with, uh, you know, getting story ideas. Like, how do you come up with most of your story ideas? Um, I get a lot of them while, while doing dishes, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and, and we have a dishwasher, but maybe I should use it less. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll just have, I'll just, you know, I, I read a lot. And I always say, um, be, be wary of any person that tells you they read a lot. But, um, you know, I, I'm just sort of constantly consuming soccer and I'll just always wind up having these questions like um, uh, Billy Bean getting involved with with AZ Alkmaar a few years ago. It's like, OK, what does that actually look like? What does that entail? What's the state of analytics in soccer? Let me, let me Bean, by the way, owns a 5% slice now of the club, which I think is interesting. He sort of turned into this tycoon um, <laughs> who owns parts of a whole bunch of different teams. Um, and what's the state of analytics? Well, where did analytics in soccer actually begin? Um, and then so I start Googling. I'm like, oh, this guy, Bill Gerrard, who's he? Let's, let's, let me find out more about him. Oh, wait, he worked with Billy Beaton. That's interesting. What did that look like? How did that happen? He was actually, by the way, not to give away too much of that story, but he was working with the San Jose earthquakes in like the mid 2000s um, because he had struck up this friendship with Billy Bean. I was like, oh, our ownership group is going to own an MLS team. So he was on the earthquakes and he was making these reports for them every single week. And he told me that absolutely nobody cared. Like they were not interested in what he had to say. And the only one that ever read them was Billy Bean, who was, of course, a baseball executive. <laughs> that was good stuff. Um, I also I liked the Alexi Lala story you did not long ago. I, you know, I know Alexi. I'm friends with him as you are. And you write about this. He's very different in person than he is on TV. And I used to actually have an issue with people like that. I felt like that made it somehow seem as if like what they were doing on TV, like it, like they were a character, they were fake in some way. But then I actually worked with Alexi over the years. And, and what you write is true. Like he's actually a really good teammate. He does his prep. He's not like one of these ex-soccer stars who wants to tell you stories about the good old days because like the vast majority of, of ex-players I've run into are like that. Like they'll volunteer stuff like that. Alexi won't do it unless you ask him. Um, and I came away from that having a better understanding of how Alexi approaches his professional work. You know, I still certainly don't agree with him on everything he says and right. and sometimes wish he would go about things in a different way to be honest professionally but he's still a friend of mine and um i'm wondering did you learn anything from doing that story yeah i mean it's it's sort of reaffirmed to me that television even if it's live sports is a show 
right? And it's and it's there's a there's a a lot more scripting in it than you would think there is, and there's a lot more production in it than you would think there is, and especially these shows that are supposed to. And I'm not talking about you know anything that um, Fox Sports is involved with necessarily, but um, a- any of these shows where it's a bunch of people yelling at each other, like it, and that are supposed to look off the cuff. Well, I'm I'm telling you, it's not nearly as organic <laughs> as it looks. Um, and and with Alexi, what I really learned from from talking to him specifically about his craft is how deeply he thinks about it and and how philosophical he kind of is about this kind of niche that he has taken the, the that he has staked out in American soccer and and how he sort of feels like it's important that somebody play this role and it's important that somebody ask the questions and maybe sometimes ask the wrong questions and you know that there was some some backlash to that story which was perfectly understandable because some things that have been said are problematic and and you know the, there there are a lot of things that I don't agree with either, but um, he's he's very conscious about that, and he's he's very intentional about the way he sort of portrays it himself. And and just what I thought was so interesting was was how different he was um, away from the camera. It, I told him this. It reminded me of Tim Howard. I did a story about him uh, a long time ago at ESPN about how on the field he always seemed like he was a bit of a maniac all sort of bellowing at his defenders and screaming and, and gesticulating. And then away from the field, you know, he was just a, the most relaxed guy in the world. And and so I asked him about that one time for a story. And he said, well, it's all an act. It's how I think. Actually, he the quote he gave me, which is still one of my favorite of all times, he said, defenders are like dogs. You have to correct them immediately or else they forget. Um, and so his point was all of this is an act. This is how I get the best out of my teammates and how, how I think I can set up the best defense in front of me. And I think in the same way, Alexius thought about how do I make this broadcast the best? And ultimately, how do I serve American soccer the best? And, you know, there's, there's detractors there to, to that approach. But that's, that's really what I learned from that story is that he's even more kind of intentional in doing what he does th- than I thought he was. A couple of interesting things there is that and we're seeing other television channels take different approaches. Like there's not a designated pot stirrer like Alexi Lawless on CBS when they have Clint Dempsey coming out with Gucci Anyewu and Charlie Davies. And, and I find that interesting. So like... And I guess also in contrast, maybe to Alexi, like whenever I've interacted with Ray Hudson, for example, Ray is as bombastic in an ordinary daily conversation as he is on the air. So there are definitely yeah. different approaches to all this stuff. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And, and I think the beauty now is that there's enough room in our soccer media landscape to have these different approaches and to have these sort of different styles develop organically. You've got, you know, NBC, which is a bit more buttoned up. And then you had for a while there TNT and, and BR who are kind of doing a, a sort of, I don't know how you, what you want to call it, but sort of a young version of that, right? And try to, to kind of reinvent that a little bit. And then you've got CBS that kind of has reverted to type a little bit, but brought in some new personalities. And and I think that's really healthy. You know, ESPN sits in the middle there somewhere that, that we now have, have a landscape 
where you actually have different and identifiable styles of covering soccer. There's not just one way of doing it anymore. Like, hey, here's this new sport. You should try it. It's cool, right? It's it's established enough that all these different um, approaches can kind of coexist within our little biosphere. Just a few more questions here with Leander Sharlakins. Really appreciate you taking the time. In terms of the stories you're writing right now for your newsletter, is there a length of story that you have found works best on this platform? I try to write between a thousand and two thousand words is usually where it winds up because I find if if you don't get to a thousands, there's there's probably not enough meat on the bone, and it's probably as a subject, it maybe doesn't merit standing alone. Um, and, and if it doesn't, then it probably shouldn't be a newsletter that, that purports to tell soccer stories. Um, cause then it's not a story. It's probably just a long anecdote. Um, I try not to go over 2000 because I, I'm very aware that I'm in people's inboxes and that there are lots of other things in their inboxes. And I, I try to be respectful of that. And, and I know people get, get, tend to get more than one newsletter. Um, and you know, it's, it's, if a story needs to be longer than that, I'm not sure that a newsletter is the right medium for it. Um, so that, that's that's sort of the sweet spot for me. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, if Soccer Stories gets the kind of response that you hope it will get, where could you see it going from here? Um, I really hope that where it goes doesn't affect me so much as as the sort of broader soccer media landscape in America. The funny thing, and, and you and I have talked about this, but the, the, the strange thing is that the more established soccer seems to become and the more entrenched it becomes in American culture, the fewer opportunities there seem to be to write about it professionally. And that's, that's certainly wrapped up in, in kind of where the, the sports media business is as a whole. Um, but it seems that whenever layoffs happen and whenever budgets are getting cut, that soccer is, is one of the first sports on the chopping block. Um, and I don't know why that is, because I know plenty of, of high ranking editors and editors in chief who are soccer nuts and who are converts and who understand that if you invest in soccer coverage, people will respond and people will read it. Um, but there's there's far too many great soccer writers in this country who are unemployed or underemployed or generally aren't being kind of uh, allowed to do their best work. And so if this works, like, it would be nice for me. That'd be cool. You know, we'll, I'll put that in my son's college fund. That'd be great. But um, most of all, I, I would like for there to just be more great soccer writing and, and for others to be able to take up this model as well and to be able to do a similar type of thing. And I don't know what the future of newsletter writing is. A, a lot of people seem to think that, um, you know, bundles and, and kind of informal types of new media outlets and media companies are, are where it's going to go. Um, I don't know what that'll look like, but I, I really hope that ultimately I can kind of establish a model, not just for me, but for others to be able to do the same kind of thing as well, where, you know, you've got not just um, the big stories on the national teams being covered, but maybe somebody can start doing newsletters on um, the minor league teams specifically or, or leagues or regional things. Um, there's so much to be covered that isn't getting the attention now that, that it might, that, that I really hope that there will be more newsletters like mine. You mentioned you've got multiple work gigs going. You're a lecturer at Marist College. What do you do with your teaching? Um, I teach sports writing 
I teach uh, journalism. I teach sports media. Um, I teach a little bit of uh, a sports culture and kind of uh, sport and society type classes. Um, it's it's a little bit of everything, so long as it's kind of within the sports communication field. Uh, I just finished up my fourth year. I'm going into my fifth uh, somehow. Uh, it's it's been really a lot of fun because you kind of help uh, shape the the sports media uh, people of the future, and that's that's really uh, gratifying. Um, and you kind of start to develop a little bit of a coaching tree, um, which is really cool. So hopefully. Um, there will be soon enough, there'll be lots of people in high ranking positions that I taught who can, uh, <laughs> who can throw more money at, at soccer. And I, am not going to let you get out of here without talking a little bit about your Donald Trump story, because <laughs> I, I encourage people to read this one. Uh, what, what, what was it about? How did you go about it? So uh, this published in May of 2020 in Slate magazine. Uh, I think the title is just, Was Donald Trump Good at Baseball? <laughs> and uh, I got a tip from my father-in-law, um, whose brother, this is going to sound like a, like a weird thread, but um, had gone to a very small private school in the Hudson Valley. And uh, he said, you know, Donald Trump went to a rival school. He went to NEMA, the, the New York Military Academy. And, uh, and so my father-in-law had been meaning to go down to uh, the local library to look at microfilm because there were so many newspapers here at the time that they would cover even these tiny private schools. And he said, you know, I bet that um, if you looked, you could probably find some game stories of Donald Trump playing baseball. I'm like, oh, hello. Um, so I went down there and I spent, you know, two days looking through microfilm and I found, I think it was nine box scores of old NEMA baseball games. Um, and put together, Donald Trump had hit, I think it was 138 between those nine <laughs> games. And nine games doesn't sound like a lot, but at the time they would have 10 game seasons mm -hmm. um, up here because, you know, they didn't, you know, the weather wasn't good enough to play baseball until about April. And so his, and he only played three seasons of baseball. So his entire career was only about 30 games. So I did actually have a good sample size. And then, you know, you start to, of course, uh, cross-reference that with the things that Donald Trump said about his high school baseball career. And he claimed that he could have been a pro. He claimed that, you know, teams came and scouted him. And of course, you know, typical, typical Trumpian fashion, he was, he, I think at one point he said he was the greatest high school baseball player in New York. Um, and then, of course, you lay that side by side with playing for this tiny high school in this nothing. Co they didn't actually even have a conference. They were so small uh, playing against all these other tiny private schools and hitting 138. So that's uh, I'm hoping that we've uh, we've debunked that that whole story. My uh, my father-in-law is, is a historian. And he's, he says, you know, you'll probably future biographies will have a single sentence in them saying that, that he claimed to have been a good baseball player, but he actually wasn't. So, the, so, so that's basically my legacy as a sports writer is, is to have added a, a little footnote to Donald Trump's athletic career. What kind of response did you get to the story? I was really surprised that there wasn't more of a backlash from the far right. There, there was the the story did great. Um, had tons and tons of traffic, lots of pickup. It was sort of all over the place, kind of to that point where where you know when a story does really well and it kind of gets away from you and everybody just kind of starts making their own version of it. Um, and I'd expected more of of a sort of pushback or or kind of a a backlash 
from uh, from Trump supporters, especially because we I I sort of gone to the White House and asked for comments. And uh, and what I heard from from one of Trump's PR lackeys was that he uh, he had nothing to add to the story. So if, if I ruined one of his afternoons, then then I'll, I'll die a very happy man. Um, but so I think that nobody really pushed back on it because it was very hard to call it fake news. And it was re- very hard to um, to sort of pretend that it didn't happen and this was all a setup because implying that it was fake news because I had the receipts, right? I had these newspaper stories from the 1960s would basically be to argue that a bunch of local newspapers in the 1960s were conspiring against the future political career of a high school student. <laughs> and it was one of those stories, I think, that, that was so well sewn up that it was kind of hard to um, to really... Uh, impeach it, you know, no pun intended. Um, so, you know, I, I think they prefer to just kind of ignore the entire thing. So to me, the more interesting thing about that story wasn't what I did here and, and the, the pickup that it did get, but actually the, the feedback that wasn't there. That's interesting. I mean, and it makes me wonder a little bit. So back in my early years at Sports Illustrated, when my writing hero, Frank DeFord, was still connected to the magazine, he was great you know, one of these legendary figures, but he was great at suggesting story ideas to other younger writers. And so he suggested a story, it's like, this is like still the 1990s, of taking, scrutinizing the athletic claims of prominent politicians in the U.S. Because he felt like there would be examples that could be found where that wasn't the case. But in this shows how different the time was then he actually felt like it would hurt the politician (laughs) because like you would get in trouble if you lied whereas like in today's culture nobody cares like if like so and so lied it doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile as you found out to like do the scrutiny show it but it's not like that was going to hurt Donald Trump. No, but at the same time it felt like this wasn't just another Donald Trump lie this just wasn't Another, oh, no, there's there's not actually a crisis going on here. Everything is fine. Everything's great. Look at the stock market. Um, th- this felt like a different kind of lie yeah. because it, it felt like it was kind of his origin story of um, I am a success. I'm a winner. I've always been a winner. I've always been great at everything. It felt like it kind of chipped away at that a little bit, right? This, oh, yeah. this, sto- this story that he tells him about himself as a lifelong success, which, which is why I thought it was going after. But yeah, no, I don't think it hurt him in the polls at all. <laughs> Leander Sharlakins has recently started the newsletter Soccer Stories on Substack. It's a newsletter that is exactly what it says it is, stories about soccer. He is also a lecturer at Marist College. You can find his site at soccerstories.substack.com. And Leander is on Twitter at Leander Alphabet. Leander, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Leander Sharlockins as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview with someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.